No, no, you can't have that. Oh, why can't we use that? Because well, we get sued, that's why. But it's only me playing it, and I'm playing it badly. Absolutely, but we'll have to think of something else. Well, let's, let's get on with it. Hello, and welcome to the first of hopefully many Lights Out Racing podcasts. This podcast will be our 2013 season preview. Before we start, we'll tell you a little bit about ourselves and a little bit about our podcast, and then we will get on to the main season preview. I'll now hand over to my co-host who will give you a brief introduction of who we are and then we'll have a quick discussion about how our podcast will work. Hi, I'm Cobb Rockwell and I thought I'd tell you a little bit more about the podcast and the website and what we're looking to do here at Lights Out Racing. Well, simply put, myself and Tony Nock are avid F1 fans that have always wanted to combine our favourite sport with a community-based podcast and website. What we want to try and do is, unlike other sites, is allow the forums to be the key driver for the podcast, uh, which will allow con- community members and contributors to uh, decide and vote on the topics that we discuss on a week-by-week basis and a race-by-race basis. What we also want to do is to attempt to try and draw all the F1 fan communities together and to ask for their own contributions to the podcast um, in order to promote their own contributions and ensure that they get due credit for their work as well. More than anything, we want to try and add a bit more humour and a bit more light-hearted uh, outlook onto onto the F1's sport itself. Uh, we appreciate that sometimes it can be quite clinical, and we want to try and present it in the most uh, straightforward and easy-to-understand manner. Uh, hopefully you'll certainly get that from us. So without any further ado, uh, let's get into the podcast itself. So hopefully that gives you a good idea about who we are and why we're here. So let's move on to the main podcast. So that leads straight into our first section, which is the news roundup. In this section, we'll give you a quick rundown of the news stories we'll be covering later in the podcast. The first story on the list for this episode will be who said what during the pre-season. We'll have a look at the rumours, the speculation and the general tit-for-tat that flew around the pre-season paddock. We'll also be looking at has Hamilton made the right decision in moving to Mercedes? What can he hope for in his first season in the new team? We'll have a look at the 2012 drivers that have been left without a race seat in the 2013 season. Which one of these we'll personally miss the most? And take a look at the ever-growing trend towards paid drivers in F1. We'll also be looking at the race calendar as it's set out for the 2013 season and what kind of impact that can have and whether any more races can be handled. We'll have a look at the 2013 rule changes, including both the on-track changes and the car design changes. Right, well that's the news roundup section completed, so let's get straight into it. Uh, firstly, we have the who said what during pre-season section, and I think most predominantly, I think over the pre-season pace, um, I think it was mainly dominated by the uh, Helmut Marco comments um, regarding Alonso's reaction to how he plays political mind games. Um, so what do you think, Tony, on that? Yeah, I do think this was the biggest news story well that stuck out in my mind anyway during the pre-season, um, purely because of the tit-for-tat nature of it and the um, uh, amount of insults that were traded between the two. And I think the only thing it really does show us is that um, these two teams definitely play the Formula 1 game in very, very different ways, where Red Bull take the pure speed, we're the fastest, we're going to win approach, and then the uh, Ferrari team play, well, maybe Alonso more than the Ferrari team, play the politics game the mind games and the we're gonna win at all costs type of approach yeah i i, I think what i what i try to understand with it was was that i think uh, especially helmut marco coming back with the comments after 
the end of the season, um, almost sort of once the dust has settled, um, to then say, well, this this is where the, um, as Vettel has said before, the, the 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 dirty tricks, I think he called it, or something along those lines. Yeah, the mind games, um, the dirty the tricks. The mind thing. games, yeah. Um, and I, I I think personally that's got where we've got the, um, the, the the most issue with in terms of you know what I think Red Bull and, and Ferrari or what they thought Red Bull thought that where they were, Ferrari were playing against really and what they were playing up to. So I think um, with Helmut Marker coming back with those comments, I think that. He's obviously got. He obviously wants to try and show Ferrari that they're recognising or they're recognising what they're trying to do. I think. I think. I think. You know. I think. More. The, the bigger question is is whether politics really does have a part to play in the sport, really, because I'm, I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, any, anything anyone goes to do with a, a group of human beings together does have does have a political element to it. But um, I'm, I'm just wondering whether you know this is the sport that should have it and we, they should play the mind games as best as they can to try and achieve what they can or whether it really should just be about uh, who, who is the fastest driver on the track. Well, yeah, I can, I can see, see the point in there and what people were raising. I think, to be honest, it does play a part in Formula 1 and maybe it should, maybe it shouldn't because it can be argued that Alonso definitely didn't have the fastest car this year but through his politics, mind games, call it what you like, that got him into a championship challenging position, mm, whereas yeah, the exactly. car itself didn't. So mm. maybe it made it more exciting. Maybe it just made people dislike the way Alonso went about things, or maybe it just makes Alonso the complete driver. He can still win races when he hasn't got the fastest car. So that leads in quite nicely to somebody else that Alonso had a lot to say about during the preseason, which mm. was Lewis Hamilton. He did, yeah. He was he was saying that um, I I think I don't know the uh, can't remember the quote exactly, but he said something on the lines of yeah, I mean you know, the driver himself is uh, is his, was his greatest threat um, throughout a large part of the season. Uh, moving into this new season, um, he's also alluding to that he's definitely still going to be the driver to beat. Um, so yeah, and I think and I think Hamilton's reciprocating that as well recently. Yeah, I think there was a lot of mutual respect shown from both drivers towards each other there. And I think the exact quote, well, not the exact quote, but the quote that Alonso came out with um, in particular for Hamilton was um, that they put any driver or most drivers in the fastest car and they will win races. But you don't have to put Hamilton in the fastest car and he will still win races. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think it's what's most interesting for, for me about that is that uh, now that they're in different teams, obviously now Hamilton's moved to Mercedes, but uh, now that they are in different teams and they're actually more direct competitors rather than teammates, it seems to have, I don't know who where this happened first or whether this was always the case, but they've always just seemed to realise that they are uh, very close, uh, very closely matched in terms of, I think, ability and, and the way they handle the media. And I think um, there's there's a greater sense of respect now that the immediate teammate pressure is off. Also, I believe as um, part of Alonso's exit contract or conditions of his exit for, or early release from McLaren, uh, he's also banned from talking about anything that happened while he was at the team as well. But he still seems to allude to now it was never Hamilton that he had the problem with. It was mm. it was always um, uh, the team and the politics they played that he didn't like. So I don't think Hamilton played the big part in that. It's not the Alonso hates Hamilton that a lot of people like to make it out. Mm. It's a lot of it is more I believe from the way Alonso speaks is I didn't or Alonso didn't like the way things were played out at McLaren for him by the way the team handled him. Which is strange I think because I remember at the time. 
uh, I remember that whether this was a more media uh, twist to it, but I, I remember that was very much what what everyone was alluding to um, in terms of what what you used to read and how how the comments were interpreted. That you know Alonso was was getting the ump basically with with um, the, the, the team's treatment with Hamilton and the fact that the way uh, I think some of the press conferences went as well, that, you know how he acted, and I think that just goes to show that. Unless you're actually there, um, and or you actually know what's going on behind the scenes, it proves that you really can't can't understand the, the truth of what's really going on behind there. Because as you say, since since they've split up, they've uh, from the from McLaren, they've made every single attempt to uh, reciprocate each other's positive comments of each other. So I think that's uh, I think that's a positive thing for the sport. Uh, I think I'm not too sure if that that is particularly positive for McLaren, but. Um, and I think it, I think it bodes well going into the next season, especially if Hamilton is able to be competitive. I think it certainly shows how they're going to race each other and how they react if they're both on the podium. Yeah, I think it's definitely the showdown that the two of them look for. I think they would love to be in um, exact, exactly equal cars, but not in the same team. I think it would suit them too. Fine. Indeed. Indeed. And also to put another slight spin on it, it may be, um, uh, can we promote each other enough and big each other up enough to maybe take Vettel down a peg or two? maybe shake his confidence a little bit for the new season mm. and yeah there, there may be there may be some ulterior motives there yeah. and if i can just jump back slightly again to um what we were saying about the media um i think possibly what they were looking at with the alonzo hamilton situation was um perhaps the second coming of like um a prost and senna type situation and we all know how well that went down in the media and how well they done out of that so um maybe that was where their thinking was lying in um drumming up a bit more of the they really don't like each other well, talking of teammates, uh, Alonso's teammate uh, Felipe Massa, who is still going to be his teammate into uh, into this season, the 2013 season. He's mentioned uh, over the uh, postseason and and into winter testing that he actually was going to potentially quit, um, you know, halfway through last season until his form improved. So, um, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think had you asked us this question, I don't know, halfway through last season, I think the you would have bet your house on Massa not filling that Ferrari <laughs> seat for, for the coming yeah. year. But like I say, maybe it was a bit of a turnaround in form or maybe there was something going on behind the scenes that the general public wasn't aware of. Maybe they realised Massa was that off the pace they were using as a bit of a guinea pig for new parts for the car, possibly to give Alonso the best challenge. I, I don't know. You've got any thoughts on that? Well... Yeah, I mean, it's quite a difficult one, really, because I do wonder at what point, you know, Massa felt that either he wasn't good enough for the car or whether he thought that um, the... the uh, Yeah, what was... The, yeah, I see what you mean. What, what, Why was he considering quitting? Was he considering quitting because he didn't like driving for Ferrari? Mm. He didn't want to be in F1 anymore? Yeah. He was demoralised by the fact that his teammate was so far ahead of him? What? Yeah, like I say, he, he says he considered quitting, but he never actually says why he why? considered quitting. Yeah. That's the thing, um, and and I think also, especially when you, you talk about some of the decisions over last season around the gearbox uh, ceiling being broken to ensure uh, Alonso got the best uh, got the best chance and got moved up the grid. Uh, you, you do think about how that was taken by him. He certainly didn't look too impressed, from in my opinion, when when not on that particular race. I can't remember what that race that was actually, but um, yeah, that was Texas. Ah, okay, right. So. You know, and of course, since then, um, you, you do wonder about whether, you know, he agreed and said, OK, that's that's the, you know, that, that's the way things are as uh, first and second drivers or, or what, really. But um, 
I suppose it it does raise another question as to how he's going to react this year. Really, I mean, what what if you know first races or the first few races into the season he's actually leading? At what point do Ferrari say, well, actually we 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 support you now? Yeah, that's um, it. Because we don't seen, know. We've seen them both saying in the preseason, even Alonso coming out and saying, if Massa's ahead of me, I will support Massa's mm. charge. It's a team game, and we we race for Ferrari. We don't race for ourselves, mm. which is what he's been uh, quite. Um, predominant in saying mm. in the preseason, but like you say, when do they decide what is that cutoff point? When do they say okay, now? Because from my look at it last season, you couldn't. It was slightly unfair to try and tell when they were going to do that because Massa was always so far behind Alonso. Very clear. Yeah, yeah, there was yeah, only one yeah. clear choice. But like you say, when the political game coming back into it again, when do they draw that line? When do they say okay, Massa, you're winning after, or so Massa, you're ahead in the championship five races are gone now is now we support you or do they say no it's still too early mm. you're not far enough ahead that it's very open-ended they've not committed to anything by coming out and saying that it's a very mm. um, a very easy statement to uh, statement to say but mm. not a very easy one to back up i would say i mean un- unless they've they've agreed uh, personally between the drivers okay at this point whoever's ahead are we all okay with that yep um i suppose that isn't I suppose in their defence, that's not something they can come out and say and say, well, whoever's ahead on this race, we're now going to take, uh, you know, we're now going to make this driver number one and this driver number two. Say, for example, four races in or six races in. Yeah, that's a very um, good because, point. Yeah, because yeah, the other teams are going to say, well, OK, that we now know what's going what's to happen and how they're going to uh, strategize, for example. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I understand why they might want to keep that to themselves. I just hope for Massa's sake that's something which has, has been agreed, because otherwise that would be quite a, a confusing point. So, I mean, going back to the, the, the point about whether he really has made the right decision, it is a difficult one, because I suppose with no uh, other seats necessarily available at, at Red Bull, Mercedes or McLaren, um, he was always going to, uh, if he was to move, um, potentially go to... Uh, a team lower down the pecking order which is always a tricky one you know is it best to stay in a, in a team and you risk being the the second driver uh but in a, in a in a supposedly better car or do you then look at being the first driver or being equal driver i should say with a team slightly lower down but that you could change the car to suit your driving style so it is a tricky one yeah and I, I do think as well that all the warning signs are there of definitely now the the sort of the pre-season shaken out and we can see what's going on I think um, Kovalainen is a perfect example. I think his move to Caterham for him was a long-term move. I think he saw himself being there for mm. five to ten years, um, maybe seeing out his career there if it went well and building that team there into something, um, probably a midfield team by the time he's he's leaving mm. and, and showing that he's got the potential of a driver to not only build a team but, but race well because we know he's a quick driver. He was, uh, again, at McLaren, maybe politics played a part he was asked to move aside for Hamilton on occasion so possibly you don't see the best of him there but he's he's won a race he's he's a race winning driver and there he's got potential to do that give him a fast car he can be a good driver and I think mm. he wanted him in himself wanted to show that he could also build a team which as we can see now hasn't really well it's not panned out for him because he's not got the drive for this season so mm, that's right and talking of drivers that are taking maybe a big risk, but that want to build a team around themselves, we've got Lewis Hamilton moving to Mercedes this year. Could be Absolutely. a very yeah, could be a, a very big risk, or it could be a big payoff depending on um, how he's looking at his move, I suppose. 
This is the yeah. This is obviously the the I think personally I think the biggest story um, from end season of last year into this one. Um, well, so I alluded yeah. to at the beginning of the show. I don't. This would have been by far the biggest story, but I think because it happened during the end of the last season, that took a little bit of its um, pre-season thunder away from it. I think, but yeah, like I say, from leading from the end of last season through the pre-season, this is by far the biggest story. I have to agree. Absolutely, and I, I, I think um, there, there's so much to it. I think. Obviously, you've got to ask the reasons of why he's leaving McLaren. Um, and I must admit, I've I've been looking at the uh, some of the highlights of, of a lot of the races over the last couple of days, and you really it brings it into uh, focus really over the kind of errors and and the kind of things that really happened, which I think from Hamilton's perspective probably uh, or could, you know could well have done uh, pushed him over the edge in terms of um, you know just moving to another team. You know, you, you have the, the pit stop uh, problems, you have um, strategic errors that were made. Uh, you really do have things which I think contributed a, a massive uh, way to, to him ultimately leaving, you know, looking to go to Merck. On top of that, really, you've, you've got uh, Martin Whitmarsh stating, oh, yeah, you know, there was a point, wasn't there, where he said um, he, he'll stay. No, there's no problem at all whatsoever. And I thought that's just asking to <laughs> Yeah, it's just, it's just the exact opposite. Yeah, it's just contract <laughs> formalities now that we're that we're sorting out with him, and it's like, no, I think you've got a long way to go. When when it gets to that stage in the season, and a driver who you has been there obviously for years, and who you think is a certain to stay, when it comes that close to the end of the season, and they still haven't signed, there is quite a big problem there. I think. Indeed, and I I think there's there's valid thoughts for, for people saying, well, okay, he's just gone to Mercedes for the money, but I, I can't quite find anywhere where. When you're talking about the sort of money that these drivers, the certainly top drivers, earn, um, whether that that plays into so much focus, I, I, I think yeah, you know, perhaps uh, I, I was listening uh, interview um, he made a couple of days ago where they said okay, I think it might have been actually the Top Gear um, interview where they said okay, there are as many commercial uh, things to do at Mercedes, and uh, Lewis said well no, there isn't, and he seemed quite pleased about it, but. Mm. Um, or not as you many, know, not as many as McLaren expects. Not from as many as McLaren. Yeah. That's that's right. Yeah, um, but I, I think going more into the, the the racing side of things, I think yeah, he's um, he's very much looking at. I I suppose one of the the other uh, larger factors that he had over the course of the season was um, when they were looking at the front wing, and Jensen had a, had a better front wing for was it uh, Spa? Spa? Yeah. Spa, and obviously afterwards they. They said to him, "Okay, you know, you know, just what what from when would you like?" And obviously, they I think what they what he came up with was I think they they did his own configuration, didn't they, at the time when they were testing, and it didn't quite put, come off. If memory serves me correctly, I believe what happened was they gave Lewis himself the option. They put the new front wing on his car. He went out for a couple of laps on it, and he said that although it felt fast, the car felt unstable. So they come back and they decided they didn't have enough time to make the necessary setup change and test again on the new front wing. So he went back to the old setup he had. But what I find quite hard to believe is if your teammate turns around and says the new front wing is a second faster, a driver like Hamilton wouldn't just go out and say, mm. I'm going to have that, whatever, I'll deal with the instability. There seems to be a bit more there. A sec- one or two tenths, I think he probably wouldn't take the risk of the instability. But a whole second, it seems a little bit far-fetched that he mm. wouldn't have wanted that to me. Yeah, and I, I, I suppose yeah, okay. That I personally feel it was, you know, as a lot of people uh, tend to tend to think, it was a bit daft to then post the telemetry of all things on on Twitter afterwards. I think that was a bit of an epic fail. 
Um, but I think the point behind it was that I think he, I felt he got a sense of injustice from it. And well, I, I think I, as well, I do... sorry, sorry, just to cut in on you there. I think as well that um, you can look at also and say, I think a lot of people have done a lot of stupid, uh, everybody has done something stupid and said something they didn't mean in the heat of an argument. And I kind of liken it to that situation with him posting the telemetry, I think. Mm. A- absolutely. And I, I, you know, personally, I think that, I think from Hamilton's perspective and much as light as anyone in any jobs, I suppose, when you really think that your management don't have the best, your best interests at heart, um, you know, by those kind of that evidence or that evidence that you see throughout the season, you know, on top of the pits, uh, you know, the, uh, the pitting errors. Yeah. Um, and, and then you have this, I think that, I think that as a package helped um, Lewis make his decision really. And yeah, okay. It's a massive risk with Mercedes. I think that, you know, you've got, a team that has, has struggled um, since since the Braun GP days. Uh, quite clearly, you have a lot. You have a team which was struggling, sort of losing a lot of tire degradation very quickly, um, and a lot of downforce issues. And um, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll cover this off a bit more in the in the Mercedes section when we look at uh, how they're gearing up for pre-season. But I think it's uh, I, I think it's a big risk. But I think for Hamilton, I think he wants to be part of of a team that has a large backing, which they undoubtedly do at the moment with Mercedes. Um, but that he then wants to have a more direct hand in improving and almost having a much greater input in ultimately developing what I think hope I think he hopes is a championship winning car. I think as well, the more I think about the situation, I, I would quite like, well, I, I would definitely liken it to, um, I don't know, looking at football and someone taking a penalty. Um, all the time Lewis has been at McLaren, he's been the penalty taker. He's been expected to do something. And if anything mm. goes wrong, it's always his fault. But I think now that he's moving to Mercedes, he's more like the goalkeeper. He's mm. there. There's no pressure on him. There's nothing. That every, everyone will always say, oh, Mercedes haven't done very well. They're not. Like I say, they've been a struggling team. But it's clear to see if the great Michael Schumacher couldn't turn them around. Then mm. a lot of people say, what chances Lewis Hamilton got? He's still learning himself. But mm. I think now he's put himself in that goalkeeper's perspective. Whereas if the penalty taker scores the goal, he had a good go, but he wasn't expected to do anything. If he saves that penalty, he, he's a hero. He's mm. He elevates himself way, way above the status he's got at the minute. Everybody knows he's a very, very quick driver. But mm. I think if he turns Merck around and takes a substandard car and then actually turns that into a race-winning car, wins races in it, I think he can actually project himself very, very highly. Yeah. So I think in, in a summary of that, I think he is taking a big risk. He is possibly jeopardising future championships, especially if McLaren produce a very, very good car this year. Mm. But the problem is, in previous years, they've produced very, very good cars, but have not produced the entire package. They haven't had everything. They've not had a fast, reliable car and no team errors. So I think it sw- swings and roundabouts. Mercedes hopefully are on the up in, in, Ham- in Hamilton's point of view, but... Uh, only time will tell, I think. But at the minute, I think all the pressure's on him while he's at McLaren. He has to perform there. The pressure's going to be off him a little bit more at Merck. Maybe he can relax and maybe it will even bring more out of him. Who who knows? So next on the list is the 2012 drivers who no longer have seats. Uh, a couple of the ones I'm thinking of, actually, is uh, Kamui Kobayashi, uh, Heiki Kovalainen. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I suppose... Before we go into the individuals, I think it's obviously a wider question now uh, moving into pre-season where we look at really the impacts over the dark drivers that have actually replaced them, so which are typically known as, as paid drivers. 
So, um, so firstly, with Kobayashi, uh, it seemed that uh, looking over the stats and, and the results of last season, he wasn't too far away from Perez, yet he, he still can't seem to get a seat. No, it's very, very, very similar. But of course, um, Perez has got the backing of Carlos Slim, which arguably makes him oh, yeah. a talented paid driver, if you like. Mm. Mm. But yeah, the, the stats for the, the two were very, very similar. They were, they were trading in podium places, sort of. Um, it wasn't as if um, Kobayashi was just consistent and maybe coming in fifth or sixth all the time and Perez is a bit more erratic. Kobayashi was right up there as well and got the podium. So, And I think as well, the popular sort of, from what I can read in across all the media, the person who's going to be missed the most and probably the biggest feeling of injustice is with Kobayashi not getting a seat for next year. Mm. Yeah, I think, you know, he seems he seems quite a nice guy. He seems to uh, like diving into the diving into the overtakes and the... And the uh, and the corners as he does, but I suppose that must make him quite an exciting driver as well. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I think obviously one of the bigger factors, or it's, it's understood to be one of the biggest factors, is the fact that they can't, um, or, or Kamu Kobayashi himself hasn't been able to raise the necessary sponsorship, and that seems to have been quite a big factor. Now, I must admit, I'm a little bit uncertain as to uh, with Gutierrez, who is ultimately a Salva replacement, the sort of um, sponsorship he was able to raise. I'm assuming it's it, it's Carlos Slim uh, again. Um, well, of course, we'll never know. But I suppose it does it does beg to differ about to what extent do paid drivers uh, make the difference in terms of how who ultimately gets that seat. Um, it seems that apart from the top four F1 teams, um, it seems that a lot of the a lot of the other F1 teams have to at least consider at least one paid driver to help the finances. Yeah, and may, as you go down the grid, maybe the back-running teams, um, possibly two pay drivers, because, like I say, um, Kovalainen, again, another driver mm. that a lot of people agree is may, maybe not the front-of-the-grid championship-winning driver, but he's definitely a race-winning driver. He's a quick driver mm. and um, probably still deserves a seat in F1. But um, as I saw, and to be honest, had quite a lot of respect for Kovalainen, he said he, he doesn't want to race in that kind of formula. He doesn't want to have to go out and raise the money he he thinks he should be there on talent and if mm. talent alone doesn't buy it he wasn't interested in raising the money so well we'll miss him but i definitely have to have respect for him in 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 regards of the way he handled himself and the way he went about it so mm. it is a tricky one because i'd, I'd also go as far as to say from a opposing point of view though that if it's become a necessary part of the sport to ensure the sport survives um then, then it has to happen. But I, I suppose it's it's a very tricky one. I mean, I, I know um, Christian Horner in a recent Sky interview mentioned that, um, you know, when he was describing Red Bull's uh, youth uh, development, obviously, and bringing drivers through, that he feels that whilst the paid drivers are, are, are a factor of the sport, he feels that the cream always rose to the top, was, was his wording. Um, but I, I suppose it... It is, a, it is a very difficult balance to make because I suppose you're, if you're saying that if two drivers of equal ability um, you know, are, are posing for a seat, then you almost look at that and say, well, it's the paid driver that's going to, going to get the seat um, because it helps the team develop and, and ultimately survive. You know, is that right? It's a tricky one. It is a fact of the sport. And I think personally, uh, you know, Bernie and the rest of the FIA officials should really need to look at this and, and see about whether... The management of money, uh, most importantly in the smaller teams, really uh, is you know doesn't put the teams in too much of a predicament where they have to depend on paid drivers. 
Yeah, so I think by by nature, like I say, by nature of the sport, Formula One is a very very high cost sport because of the mm. the very very little margin for error and the massive amount of development that has to go into the cars. But mm. like I say, I think they really need to draw the line in saying um, maybe some of the um, an idea I think it was posed a couple of years ago was they would have um, subsidised uh, testing venues and wind tunnels and things like that for the smaller mm. teams to use at a certain rate. I think this is what needs to be more. I think below a certain income bracket and that's quite all they've got to do is they've just got to show the books um to bernie as such to show what they what they bring in what their sponsorship is for anyone below a certain bracket maybe give them um i don't know testing facilities maybe a little bit of extra help in money costs maybe buying a very very basic wind tunnel that the bottom five teams can use for example uh, subsidized Mm. or very cheap rate because um, looking at teams like what the old Virgin team that's now Marussia, they designed to cut costs. They designed all of their car on a computer. Mm. It was all computer simulation. And whether it's done, it's too early to tell whether they've taken the right path or the wrong path because it's all fairly even down mm. the back there with Caterham. And of course, we now have HRT missing from the grid from this shoe, couldn't raise the entry fee and has subsequently been sold off and um, removed from the grid. They didn't make the entry, so they will no longer be there. But maybe that's what they need to look at more is rather than cutting down the cost across the whole grid, maybe giving a bit more help to the back teams will possibly eliminate the need for paid mm. drivers as much. But maybe I, I don't know, really. I, I'd worry about some of the teams obviously cooking their books. Obviously, I'm sure they won't. But yeah. um, obviously, um, should I use the word creative accounting to ensure that they, they either go above or below the bracket accordingly? But um, I suppose going back to the, the point that you know, if it means that they'll be less dependent on paid drivers and ultimately uh, it, w- it would be purely down to talent, then, you know, I think that's that's fair enough. Um, you know, I, I, I suppose the other thing is, is that if that the, the only problem is if the, the uh, driver is actually very good, but he's also carries a lot of high sponsorship, does that in turn actually create a lot of negative press for him because he's because he's both, you know, and that, that sometimes can be a bit difficult as well to try and um, evaluate. But I, I believe, yeah, but a perfect example of that would definitely be um, Sergio Perez. I think he's definitely suffered from that. A lot mm. of people want to call him a paid driver and saying maybe he's overrated. Um, he's only got his McLaren seat because of money, but it doesn't really strike me as McLaren as a team that will need the money and will go begging. I think McLaren want the best of whatever they can get. So mm. I think he's maybe suffered a little bit unfairly from that. And like you say, the backing behind him maybe hasn't got him the best image mm. that yeah. he would want. So I think I think in summary, then I think if if there's the smaller teams that are struggling for cash can at least just show they're trying to manage their, you know, their, their finances the best they can. Um, I, I would even say that uh, so long as they've shown every effort that you know, and obviously they're they're not um, putting back or holding back uh, a driver which is clearly uh, by far you know much more talented but doesn't have the the kind of sponsorship or the financial backing as, as another perhaps more mediocre driver would have, then I think at the moment, the state the sport is in, I think that that, that would be the best course of action personally. And I think obviously as, as the finances sort of hope to recover, if, if the you know, global economics helps to, uh, to achieve that, then hopefully we'll then start to see a, a bigger recognition for, for talent over, over money. Yeah, ho- hopefully we, we can only hope for that. So like I say, unfortunately, the trend seems to be the other way. Mm. at the moment but like you say hopefully true talent winning through because of course you've always got to look at as well uh, as just a summary to go by um you've just looking at talented drivers if they can outperform the car they're in 
as long as they don't move to a bigger team and there's a little bit of I want to stay with this team I want to build it that kind of attitude and a little bit of loyalty to the team that's maybe brought them into F1 if they can then um, raise that team's stock and get them a bit of sponsorship hopefully that is where the talent pays for itself in getting the team higher value but Mm. is that possible or can you only buy can you only raise uh, like um raise up yourself in the champ raise your standings in the championship can you only achieve a higher place by spending more money on the car or can a talented driver actually raise you up there's no examples at the moment it's pretty static nobody's really moving anywhere maybe force india have made slight inroads um into that but again uh, who can say you you need a really sort of talented driver to stay at one team start building it and, and maybe again going back to the previous story maybe um i know Mercedes have got a lot of money there's a lot of capital going into that already but maybe Lewis can show that that's the way to go take a talented driver put him in maybe the fourth possibly fifth best team if he can raise that into a championship winning team hopefully that makes Mercedes look a lot more valuable and sets the precedent then for smaller teams getting very talented drivers that will hopefully increase their their value and their worth in sponsorship money rather than just the driver himself bringing it to the team Mm mm-hmm so moving on to the calendar for this year, we have uh, just the 19 races instead of the 20. There was a possible return for Turkey on the cards, but never happened. And of course, now we've lost Valencia from from the season, which some mm. people will say is a good thing. Other people will say um, <laughs> last season was actually quite good. Um, so uh, it's not going yeah. away for good either. It's just rotating with Barcelona. So Yeah, well, it's part of the European Grand Prix, yeah? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, Barcelona hosted this year, then Valencia next year, so on. Yeah, I mean, I, I, what, what I don't understand with this is that, obviously, it, it seems a fairly packed race race calendar now. Um, I suppose when it gets to, I think they're looking to get to 20 races, obviously, with the um, New Jersey street yep. circuit that's looking to be developed. So what what I want to try and better understand is, is, is the impact that the sort of race calendar can have on teams. Because, obviously, whilst it's great that you, we could almost get to the stage where, there's a, apart from the, the mid-season break, there's almost a race every week. Um, I just wonder what that generally has an impact on in terms for the team and ultimately the sport. I think from the team's point of view, a lot the general consensus among them all was definitely that 20 races was the most they could manage. The teams physically couldn't put in any more work than that. Mm-hmm. I don't think so. I think as long as they're staying around that kind of mark, that means that um, everything, the factories, etc., or everything that goes into running a team for the season at 20 races, I think is pretty much running at 100%. So. Mm. so from changes to the calendars, we're going straight into the rule changes for 2013. Yep, the first one and probably the obviously debatably most noticeable will be um, the absence of HRT, obviously, will now mean that the qualifying's change. This year and the previous year, we with the amount of teams, we would have seen seven cars eliminated from each of the first two qualifying sessions. Uh, this would have been, generally speaking, throughout the course of the season, the pattern um, that emerged was uh, it was the three new teams plus one other unlucky person but of course adding a slight slant to this now with HRT gone they won't fill those first two slots so it will probably be the um, uh, Caterham's Marussia and two others rather than just the one other so maybe so, for slightly more interesting 
So in, in interesting in the sense that obviously teams now can't just well I'm say they, they would do, but relax into into a, a, a second and third qualifying. They're really going to have to, especially the, the lower order teams, whoever they're going to be. And it would be certainly interesting in the first few races because I don't think people will know where their where their typical pecking order lies. No, so um, I think the stakes about, are a little bit yeah. higher as well because you've got that. Um, we're not just going to lose one one of our team. We could lose both of our team in the first qualifying Indeed. session now. Indeed. Will, will they have to be more on the ball and, and even start using up more of their tyres now with, with the tyres degrading like they seem to be? Uh, that's certainly going to put the cat amongst the pigeons. I think we're going. To, I think we're going to see some surprises. Yeah, and maybe as well, if Caterham and Busher have maybe made a big jump this season, they may even possibly be challenging to get out of that Q1. Maybe who mm. knows? It hasn't on previous seasons' performances that hasn't happened. But maybe mm. this year could be a little bit different. I say with them, um, two extra spots to go out in each qualifying session now, effectively rather than the one before. Obviously, HRT won't be filling them, so there's mm. your you yep. won't be as far down the grid as you used to be but you've still got that the stigma if you like of going out in the first qualifying mm. session especially marussia with the curves now as well in uh, greece yeah certainly look nice. mm-hmm. yeah which some debated last year was what set catering apart the fact they had curves and marussia didn't of course mm. absolutely so yeah can't wait for that okay. um Right, moving on now. Just in, so the next piece really is in terms of the DRS that will now be limited to qualifying um, to only be operated in the actual race DRS zones rather than whenever they feel like it, or typically any straight. That was correct. Or in a case, maybe Vettel's case, um, uh, just as early as you can get away with it on any corner. Of course, um, <laughs> a lot of people debating that the um, the extra downfall to the Red Bull gave him the advantage there, where he would open his DRS, where um, mm. anyone else opening their DRS at the same position would cause them to fly off into a wall, possibly. Yeah. So maybe that being a little bit limited now, perhaps maybe the only big change that's going to make is possibly to Red Bull, as Vettel will now only be able to do it on the straights. So, mm-hmm. But of course, yeah, the... Yeah. the DRS zones are still defined as they were before for the races. Um, they would be defined by the FIA, and in the races they could use them there, and in qualifying they could use them wherever they want. The only real difference now is that uh, it's been scrapped for qualifying. They can now only use them in the race zones in qualifying as well. Mm. So the next one is the um, proposed. Well, what was um, called the step nose ban for this year? Yeah. Of course. Now we've seen all of the new cars. We know that the step noses haven't actually been banned, and obviously we we knew this anyway. It was just um, I think mm. the term was just banned was sort of bandied about, if you like, um, banned when all it was was a small alteration to the rule saying they could now have a vanity plate to cover them if they wanted. And of course, a lot of teams have designed a non-step nose. Some have designed a step nose, and some have actually gone with a step nose with a vanity plate. So a, a good mix this year, rather than just everybody having the step nose, apart from McLaren, obviously, of last year. So. Um, would be interesting to see how everybody's interpretation on that rule and the different ways they've gone about their noses this year will uh, make a difference. Mm. Well, I just wonder why they, I mean, probably because I'm, I'm quite vain like this, but I just wondered about whether, uh, why all teams just didn't build a nose that, that didn't have it. Um, I, I presume it's something to do with the overall design of the car or, or how that car would then weigh as a result of designing the nose a certain way. I, th- I think this, sw- this swings and roundabouts on this one. I think um, if some teams, like um, especially uh, Lotus, said they weren't going to add a vanity plate because of the weight, mm. but other teams have designed it in there, and it may be um, designing a curved nose is obviously not giving you the aerodynamic boost that a stepped nose would because 
mm. in some respects that can they can obviously eke a little bit more of aerodynamics out of that what mm. they're fundamentally going to go for is whatever gives them the most they're not going to go for a smooth looking nose just because it looks nice they're going to go with whatever design they think gives them the highest amount of downforce and obviously the most performance right so i think again this is going to be this is why it's going to be interesting you're going to see a lot of teams interpreting the rules in a lot of different ways and who, mm. who knows is what what will be right because mclaren were the only one that went with the the curving nose last year and mm. subsequently changed it fairly early on in the season so maybe it wasn't the best idea from them so mm. they, they didn't change it to a step nose but they changed the design from what they originally come out with so maybe again we might see that this year it's going to be a lot harder to change designs this year, but it's still possible. Maybe even some mm. teams, the step nose ones, may may introduce a vanity plate if they think they can get a little bit of extra aero performance out of it. Again, only time will tell. When the teams get out on the racetracks, it will be down. We'll, we'll see what, where they've done and where they've picked up the pace. Right, so the next one on the list is the a very, very simple one that will take all of about 10 seconds to go through. The minimum weight of the car has been reduced, uh, sorry, increased from 640 kilograms to 642. And basically the only reason that is, is the new Pirelli tyres weigh an extra two kilograms. So, <laughs> so it's not the cars, it's just the, the tyres. Yeah, the tyres weigh an extra two right. kilograms. So they're allowed to be an extra two kilograms, or they have to be an extra two kilograms mm. heavier when they mm. finish the race. So of course... The big thing in F1 is you will be disqualified for being underweight. Mm. So they've got an extra two kilograms because the tyres weigh an extra two more kilograms. Mm. So again, so it's no, not, it's not. Yeah, it's no difference for the cars then necessarily no, from no. last year. It's just the yeah the, the threshold goes up. I yeah, do they, wonder why the Pirelli tyres are, are more are more heavier this year though. More layers on them, for for example, to shred or. I'm guessing probably just a different compound would be my guess. Right. I, I don't know about sizes. I I couldn't tell you. And we've got one that was a bone of controversy last season. They have now introduced tougher deflection tests for the front wings. So basically, I think what they're doing now is they're measuring the flexing of the front wings and uh, loads from different angles rather than just the straightforward, uh, can we hang a weight off the front wing without it breaking? Mm. So yeah, maybe then we're going to see Red Bull maybe... If that was the secret to their speed, maybe they will suffer a little bit for these tests. Maybe again they will just find a clever way around it. Am I also right in thinking that we don't, we wouldn't necessarily see too many slow mos anymore that some directors kept doing on so many races, where as the cars would turn the corners, they would slow, obviously do a big slow mo replay, action replay, where you'd see the front wing waving about um, like there's no tomorrow. Uh, and then we'd see that at least eight or nine times every 10 minutes, I think, on some of these races half the time. So will they be flexing as much or is that uh, just just more stringent tests to ensure that uh, in a straight line, these these wings won't flex so much? Um, I think the answer to that is only time will tell, because, of course, the front wings are supposed to be rigid and not flexible anyway. Mm. So the fact that some teams have managed to beat the current or the, the mm. previous year's testing and still have wings that apparently seem to deflect quite heavily under load if they can find a way of doing that again and beating the tests of course they're still legal so mm. if it becomes a controversy again this year we will probably see a lot mm. more of those slow-mos again so <laughs> it just depends how much the media wants to spotlight that i suppose <laughs> indeed um I mean, the, the last one i know is, is something which is known quite incorrectly actually as as active double drs so i, I think it's but it's not actually active double double drs is it no, there's no DRS system on the front of the car. They're just using the air channeled from the front of the car. Mm. So they're using it from, from extra. And basically they're getting a little bit of extra downforce 
removed from the front of the car as well when the rear DRS is open. So they they are not now not allowed to have the um, the front DRS as such that um, Mercedes had last year and Lotus tried as well. Um, operated with the rear DRS system, so you can't have the systems interfering. If it it can only be passive, so it can't actually move anymore. Which is obviously the difference: active and passive. If yeah. you think of the rear DRS, so that's active because you've got the wing opening. The passive DRS is you've just got it channeled through air in, like intakes in the car, and the air is being channeled. I think a few teams have tried it. This is the same thing I'm thinking of, where obviously past a certain speed and a certain rate of airflow the ring wing effectively stalls so which basically means that a part of the wing will open up over a certain speed yeah that's correct we've seen red bull trying this out during the testing and basically what happens is once the car reaches a certain speed and under a certain load um more passive drs um flaps will open and reduce the drag further than just the rear drs wing opening but the problem the team seems to be having with this is because the rear DRS is controlled by the brake. So as soon as the driver presses the brake pedal, the rear wing will close. These flaps on the new passive DRS system, because they're not allowed to be linked to this um, same mechanism that closes the rear wing, the teams are having trouble actually getting the wings to close um, under well when the speeds reduce or when the loads reduces. So it looks like they're getting them to open fine, but they just can't get them to close again. So, of course, that's going to cause instability in the cars. Okay, now we need to look at the team lineups for 2013 and how they're shaping up uh, throughout pre-season and ready for Melbourne. So uh, we'll do it straight from the top, really. Um, so we'll take the top teams first, I think. And obviously the first one is the world champions, Red Bull. Um, so we have the same driver lineup as 2011 uh, with Weber out of contract at the end of the season. So, I mean, in terms of their chances this year, I suppose it really is they can... I mean, I know Horner, Christian Horner and... Uh, and uh, Adrian knew have said this before, but of course, with success means that you can only almost go down. So it's a case of really just trying to maintain uh, maintain that success and that performance, because obviously they know they've got a very good basis. Um, they have a car which naturally produces a, a lot of downforce. Um, they have obviously a, a very clear strategy, which seems to obviously try and lead from the front as, as quickly as possible. Um, so I, I'm very, very interested to see about whether they can maintain it. They have also mentioned, though, conversely, that uh, obviously with the rules not changing much, that it uh, poses a better opportunity for their competitors to, to catch them up. I think as well, yeah, that's that's quite a very, very good point in the fact that these cars now, there's going to be feet in many doors, I think, this year. You've got um, these cars being an evolution of last year's cars. They, they're different enough, I think, to make the design from the ground up again from the cars which they are every season there's enough there's enough change that they're not going to just take the same chassis completely and just rebrand it a little bit they they have had to work on this but of course we're also looking at a complete rule change for 2014 that means the teams are going to have half an eye on and half a foot in the door as well of what's going to happen on next year's car so Mm. who's who's really focused on this year who's maybe looking to next year because again it's been um, banded around that possibly mercedes are already looking at next year's car rather than Mm. this year's one so yeah, yeah. I mean, it also begs the question as to hopefully they've, whether they've sorted the alternator issues out as well. And um, that would be very interesting to see if their reliability improves as a result. But um, I suppose with Weber, uh, you know, signing an additional year, I suppose the assumption is is that this really is his last year at Red Bull. Um, and I do wonder with Helmut Marco's comments uh, that we mentioned before um, about his, particularly about him as well, uh, whilst he was in the same context and he was commenting on Alonso. Uh, about about Weber's reaction and reaction to pressure, 
about whether he's actually going to rise to the challenge. Really, I know he, he likes prefers seems to be prefer that it being that underdog uh, status, and whether he'll be more a competitor for Vettel this year. Yeah, I think we saw when Weber was challenging for the title that the the year he was doing that in 2010, it really did it sort of crumbled away. Not pretty much through I would say his own inability to deal with the pressure. Maybe that is a good thing in a way that maybe he's learned from that and maybe it will bring it back as a stronger driver. But I think Weber really had his chance that year and, and possibly maybe it's passed him by now. So mm. again, we can only tell because of course he really didn't put up much of a fight for Vettel last year. So yep. apart from maybe in the last corner in Brazil, which was maybe a little bit naughty of um, <laughs> squeezing him a little tighter than you would like. Uh, the team would have liked him to have squeezed his teammate. No, yeah, I think there was a message there. I think most certainly, but I, I think, yeah, that, without a shadow of a doubt, Red Bull will, will be up there, I think. And certainly if not in the, in the top uh, two, then certainly in the top three. Right, moving on to the next team to look at, we have Ferrari. Um, of course, mm. retaining both the same drivers um, as last year. Obviously, halfway through the season, as we alluded to earlier on, that was debatable whether we'd even see Massa in Formula mm. One this year, let alone a Ferrari seat. So um, very much so. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, this is a tricky this is a tricky one. This one because I think obviously last year they had what you know it's been quite widely recognised early on as a, a car that was struggling. I think personally it, it improved and continued to improve. I mean, let's face it, you know, uh, I think no matter how good a driver is, if, if if you're still able to compete for the championship towards the end, it can't be that much of a bad car. So I suppose the the assumption here was that they would be able to start from a, from a, a better platform um you know they they had access to to you know a longer time with the, with the wind tunnel i believe um they certainly came out with a similar looking design car to the, the mclaren as a result um and i think yeah i think subsequently the the pressure is a little bit more on them now to really have a competitive car from the outset yeah i've seen massa from his comments in the testing as well he's already says he feels a lot more comfortable with this car than yes. he did with last year's car at the mm. testing stage and Alonso's also said they've they're starting it may not be the fastest car again still which uh, how he knows that at this stage I, I'm not sure yeah. but he in his words it's a stronger base than they started from last year so yeah very much so I mean in, in terms of the styling of the car it's got a lot more black underneath which has upset some people <laughs> I think but ultimately the important the important points are is how this car is going to perform and how it's going to I think personally, with with McLaren's um, luck and and or lack of luck on and mistakes last year, uh, which we'll go into a little bit more detail in a sec, I think Ferrari do actually I think want to be competing more off their own merit rather than circumstance this year, and I think that's something which I think this car has to prove. Yep, I I definitely think so because um, again we all know that Ferrari is a team based heavily around image and like I say I think the impetus is very much on them now to um, to start off with a good car and then go from strength to strength as the season progresses. So the next one we want to speak about is the McLaren team. So obviously quite a lot of changes um, since last year, uh, most typically uh, mainly driver orientated um, with with Jensen Button. Um, taking or assuming, I should say, the, the lead role in the team uh, with Sergio Perez joining. Uh, I must must admit, the first uh, the first day Perez turned up for work, so to speak, I was was quite amused because it did look like uh, they'd uh, they'd got him a shirt made out of paper. But um, <laughs> looking looking very, about very five sizes sharp. too big for him as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there is that. <laughs> but um, no, I think you know you know I'd, it's a great opportunity for for Sergio Perez if we focus on him for for the, for the time being. 
Um, I think uh, when, when McLaren come calling after a, a you know a, a quite consistent beginning to the 2012 season for him, then I, I think that's a, a positive. I, I suppose my only concern is obviously as as mistakes were made. I think even he's said in um, since that throughout the latter half of 2012 that you know he didn't have such a good season. That I think even McLaren really started to put pressure on him then, really, by saying, oh, you know, he's going to have to improve and he's going to have to do X, Y, Z. And I, I think so far his attitude's been been very been very positive. I think he's just kind of, you know, taken, taken in his stride. Um, and I, I think it would be very interesting to see, uh, as because both him and Jensen are considered quite, uh, quite capable of managing the tyres, what McLaren's strategy will be this season as to how the car is designed and, and ultimately how their race strategy pans out. Yeah, I think they've they've started with a good base to build on. Obviously, Jensen Button set um, what was called an amazing time by um, Felipe Massa in the first testing at Jerez. So, yep, and um, they've obviously got something there to be out of the blocks that quick. So, like I say, um, hopefully, if they can hold on to their tires and their car doesn't fail when they're out in the lead this year, they they a very very good strong base to start from there with them. And uh, again, they're not replacing. Some arguably Hamilton um, as the I say arguably fast one of the fastest uh, drivers on the grid. They're not replacing um, him with somebody who's slow. They're replacing him with somebody who's up and coming, a lot to prove. So I'm expecting we'll see Perez trying very very hard this year. Whether mm. that'll be too much pressure to put on a young driver, and maybe he'll falter a little bit under the pressure as we saw. I think a little bit in the tail end of last season, he got a a, a little bit pass happy. I think. And mm. put his car in some places it probably shouldn't have been put in. But yeah, I mean, he, he did set a, a good time in Jerez as well, and um, I think that's uh, on his own. Um, and I think that's it does beg the question as to whether is he is he going to to be more successful than, than Button? I mean, I suppose a lot of people say, oh heavens no, you know, he's been in the team short amount of time, etc. But um, it will be very interesting to see that the team the team battle at McLaren this season uh, and, and seeing how both drivers respond to that. Indeed, it could be. There's, I think, the potential for it to be very reminiscent of 2007 with um, uh, the rookie mm. Hamilton coming in and and destabilising. Some would say the uh, the current world champion in Alonso. So, yeah, I mean, if McLaren have learned, have, have learned, if there is, if they say there is anything to learn from that season, from their own perspective, I certainly feel that if you know, going back on what we mentioned regarding the Alonso Hamilton relationship before, you know, if if they if they did have a lot of challenges uh, with, with Alonso and Hamilton and in managing that, there could be quite uh, quite a similar scenario here with the two drivers, especially if Perez, um, you know, he, he does does quite well and qualifies better than than, than Jensen Button. So, yeah, it'd be really interesting. I suppose obviously that some of the key things for them is to iron out the mistakes, which I know Sam Michaels in an interview um, post season said that yeah, they you know hold hands up, you know, they've clearly been too many, um, and I think if they can iron those. Uh, those errors out and I think they if they can make uh, you know, good strategic decisions uh, on the fly I think that they can certainly um, certainly be up there again obviously with with Ferrari and Red Bull who are considered the I think the top three really to, to to maintain their position into next season I mean that's it McLaren's never well they rarely fail to deliver a good car so we know the car is going to be up there and going to be reasonably good it's even like last year they debatably again um, delivered the best car some would say, mm. last season, and yep. then just threw it away through their own mistakes and un- unreliability. Mm. So, 
Okay, and on to the next team in the list. So that will be Lotus um, having a very strong finish to last year's season and hopefully, and by the looks of it, producing a fairly strong car for this year's as well. Yeah, I'm sexy and I know it. Well, not not me, obviously, but uh, the, the uh, tagline that was across the car was certainly uh, interesting, especially especially when you still got the nose the way it is. Though. I was thinking, mm, that car could have been sexier. But um, no, I mean, I, I think it seems, judging by... Um, testing at the moment that uh, Eric Boudier have said that uh, you know they'll, they'll certainly look to try and get into in amongst uh, the big three, uh, which I think is still a bold statement. I think considering where they were there to come from, I think the car this year's certainly got to qualify well. I think that's the key thing, and I think if they if it qualifies well, it almost always ended up on the podium last year. Yeah, I think it was it was uh, fairly good at keeping hold of its tyres. The only problem it, we did see, I think, was that it would tend to um, dramatically lose its tyres very very quickly after it held on to them for mm. for a long time. But pretty um, probably more so than a lot of the other cars as well. But one thing, looking at the design of this year's car as well, it looks um, more, very much more of an evolution of last year's car than some of the others do. They don't look like they've changed a massive amount. And as we know, it finished quite strong. Hopefully, they'll carry momentum from last year's car over into this car. All right, so moving on to Mercedes. We've obviously already covered off quite a bit about uh, Lewis moving into the team. Um, obviously, with, with Nico, he's he's stayed there, and I think since his uh, Chinese Grand Prix win last year, um, obviously he'll be looking to to improve on that. Um, yeah, so I mean, really, just to mainly just a focus for this team on on performance so far in testing. Obviously, the, I think the first day or the first couple of days for the two the two drivers was was quite challenging. Uh, yeah, it didn't go the uh, yeah. yeah, didn't go the best as um, yeah. as they would say. Absolutely, we had we had uh, Nico um, with almost uh, Back to the Future style flames coming out of the back of his car, <laughs> and uh, we had Lewis, um, you know, with with a brake failure. So it was it was yeah, it was pretty pretty scary, I'd imagine. But um, I think since then they managed to get a horrendous amount of uh, of laps in, which is which is promising. Um, uh, third, third third most overall, I believe they've covered the third oh, biggest right. distance of all the teams. Which, which hopefully is a good sign for them. Um, and I, I think, uh, I, I suppose the only thing which is quite interesting from from Jerez itself. I mean, we won't obviously go into the specific timings, but um, uh, there's a there's an article by Gary Anderson that does does talk about the the timings overall for all teams. So, uh, by all means, look on the BBC site for that. We'll we'll link it on the forums. But um, I, I think obviously with Mercedes this year as well, a lot of a lot of management changes. So we won't go into too much depth there, but. Um, Obviously, uh, you know, a lot, lot, of, lot of comments and a lot of uh, column time and, and space has been spent discussing that already um, with uh, Toto Wolf um, being there as a managing director and obviously with uh, Nicky Lauda as a non-executive director. So, you know, Ross Bourne's been very clear, I think, this week that, uh, you know, he's still in charge. And I think uh, with the rumours that uh, Paddy Lowe was looking to join them into this season, I think, you know, I think as long as the, the management team behind are very clear on what the what the strategy and plan is, then um, I don't necessarily think the, the drivers have necessarily anything to worry about. But, uh, you know, the media do seem to think that that can be quite unsettling for drivers. Yeah, I think sort of the management changes there have just been a statement of intent. Really, they're bringing in big names. They want to, um, they want to go forward. They want to get higher, and um, everybody needs to work out where they fit in that. And and hopefully, on a personal level, I hope Ross Bourne stays there because I think he's the, the Mercedes haven't set the um, set the place on fire. Well, 
they set the car on fire in the first day of testing, but they've <laughs> not they, they've not set the any of the um, timing sheets alive and sort of and anything like that. They've not really sort of come into their own as a team so far. But again, is it something they're building to? Could you really expect a team that effectively was starting more or less from scratch on a car to come in and and be where they are? Because you've only got to look at what Cater and Marussia, brand new teams, haven't really achieved. Although it's argue, arguable that it goes back to Braun and Honda, they've not really. That that's a big change, and maybe the changes are just sort of settling down now. But as mm. long as they can keep that core in place, hopefully there's that's flowing there. And I, I say on a personal level, I'm hoping they don't get rid of Ross Braun because I think that's them sort of changes is what will destabilise the team. As long as the core management stays in place, I think they've got a good structure to build on for the future. Okay, leading into the next team, that is uh, the Sauber. Um, Nico Hulkenberg coming across from Force India there and. Mm-hmm. Um, possibly taking the taking the lead in the team. Some some people have said oh, that's a bit of a sideways step. Or again, is he another driver that's looking to stay somewhere for the long term and maybe try and take a midfield team up to a front running team? It certainly seems that uh, he's looking for the long term view um, from from the interviews that he that he's had uh, that that I've seen. And I think um, obviously you, you, you said there's you know you also got a balance between is that a reaction from the the, the force india supposed uh, rumored financial troubles that the relevant uh, companies uh, behind behind force india um with with vj's team uh, about whether that has a factor from a driver's uh, sense of longevity and whether he you know he doesn't want to be in a trouble with in a struggling team so but i mean just focusing on on Sauber, yeah i think it's um you know they they certainly punched well above their weight last year um and i think to their credit and i think this year they they have certainly moved up i think they are certainly a, a big competitor and i think they'll be looking to knock on the door that the position that mercedes were even potentially having uh, may have this year uh, along with lotus and i think with it i think they made some very good strategic decisions last year as well didn't they yeah I, I believe so and that that shows i think from the fact that um they had two they didn't just have one driver it wasn't the the superstar perez just blasting away and over outperforming mm. the car both drivers had an equal footing in there as we again alluded to earlier on both both drivers picking up podiums getting right down there at the front and and generally the the tactics probably across um i would maybe go as far as saying the entire grid probably the best tactics out there probably went to Sauber. They made they made the best of probably all the slightly tricky um, gambling situations that they went for. So, yeah, absolutely. And I think um, obviously the, the other thing that the, I think Sauber were very smart with were how they re- recognised that tyre management was going to be a big factor. And I think if anything, it's going to be more so this season. Um, so I, I think I mean, aside from Gutierrez, who as I say is, isn't too familiar uh, with with me, but I understand he's a GP2. I think obviously again you have that that rookie that rookie potential there. Um, yes. and, and, Sal, the and, Sal, and Salba test driver as well, so he's not a complete rookie. He's driven the car before. He knows. Oh, I see. Yeah. Oh, okay. So yeah, so he knows the car and he knows the team better as well. So um, yeah, I think I think that's that's certainly the. Uh, also, I think it'd be derogatory to call them another dark horse this season. I think they, they are definitely ones which are up and coming, and I think. Uh, with uh, with Calton Bourne there as the as the uh, the head honcho, I think um, I think yeah, there's, there's going to be some of, yeah a lot of stability I think for Peter mm, Salva exactly. and and over there you want someone who's been in the team a long time absolutely all right so now moving on to Force India where uh, Nico Hockenbaugh came from so the lineup at the moment as of recording is uh, Deresta with an as yet unnamed uh, second driver yep to be confirmed 
to be confirmed, um, which is likely to be Jules Bianchi or Adrian Sutil. So, obviously, with the, with the uh, corporate financial rumours associated with with this team, I suppose you just got to hope that it isn't destabilising. Um, obviously, HRT is a good example, personally, I think, from last year, although they, they were always at the back anyway, so it's a bit difficult to understand the, the performance difference it could have. But, um, yeah, hopefully... Hopefully they'll be there throughout the season, and um, hopefully, as I say, I think Paul Dressler has made it no, you know, uh, made it very clear that uh, he's looking to, to to push on to to a larger team. So um, we'll just have to see if both the car and himself can can try and achieve that or prove that. Yeah, I think it's hard to actually sum up a team when you only know one of the drivers. You don't know who the second one's going to be. You can't mm. really tell. There's nothing. There's nothing to compare people to. We know we know Dressler's a good solid driver. The only thing we can say is. Um, he'll probably carry on to do the same again. But just looking at getting a drive in a bigger team is probably his ambition there. So I say until we could we know who the second driver is, we can't really comment on the team as a as, as a package. And on to another midfield running team from last year is uh, Toro Rosso. So it's both drivers again re-signed for this year. So it's Jean Eric Verne and Daniel Ricciardo and. Uh... I, I think obviously I think the, the big thing for them now is I think but do believe they're they're trying to design their cars this year with a larger operating window, which I think um, from the driver's perspectives has been requested to ensure that they can show um, that, that they can make the step up to, to the Red Bull team by showing that uh, they've got a better range of driving ability. I, I assume I suppose that's how that's why they want a larger operating window. And um, yeah, I definitely got the impression to our Russell were unhappy with their uh, performance last season, especially towards the end. Yeah, I think so. And I think it's um, there's definitely a heavy, heavy sort of um, impetus now, I think, on um, getting a replacement for Weber, I believe, mm-hmm. from Toro Rosso, because Toro Rosso is the training ground for the for the Red Bull drivers. Uh, Vettel started there. So it's quite openly the, the young driver program for Red Bull. And mm. for them to show they've um, subsequently had a lot of personnel who didn't make the grade and have uh, gone by the wayside sort of um uh, Sebastian Buemi, people like that mm. in, in the past. They, if they don't measure up, they tend to go out. For, so for them to keep two of the same drivers from one year when they didn't form, perform particularly well on to the next year, they must see potential in them. And you would have to think that Weber being on a one-year deal at Red Bull now means that one of these drivers, or the best probably best performing driver of these two this year, will more than likely get the Red Bull seat. Um, as as and when the time comes, providing it's not filled with a bigger name driver, I would say. Mm. And I suppose the way the the way the driver lineup is is looking, I suppose it depends on how all the other drivers shape up this year. But I do wonder, you know, what choices Red Bull would actually have. Um, not being derogatory to the Toro Rosso drivers as well, but um, I think your point is valid. That where else would they go necessarily for for talent that's that's not that's good enough for the for uh, the Red Bull primary team. Uh, but it also doesn't necessarily um, compete too much with, with Vettel. Yeah, it obviously didn't mm. work at McLaren with having uh, Alonso. Of course, the dynamics are a little bit different there with Hamilton mm. there because he was a rookie. But putting two former world champions in a team, um, even going back and looking further back, looking at Prost and Senna, we know that that, that didn't go well. So possibly now a, a natural pattern is maybe coming out amongst the teams in looking like um, each of the big name f- real first drivers has got their own team now looking at the top of the field mm. and that's the natural progression. So yeah, maybe you wouldn't get two number one drivers at a team like Red Bull. So they want the best of the rest possibly in Ricardo or um, Verne. Okay. So I think they'd be looking to improve uh, and looking into going into, I would have thought what the top 10 
Uh, yeah, I, I would think so. They mm. they definitely don't want to be um, uh, having Kato and Marussia snapping on their heels as they were last season. That is um, uh, definitely where they do not want to be. So they want to be the challenge in the likes of the, the Williams, the uh, the Force Indias. Yeah, I think that's who that that will be who they'll be looking at this year. Okay, so the next one on the list is Williams. Uh, so we have uh, Vateri Bottas and Pastor Maldonado. I think Maldonado is one of these drivers who shows um, flashes of brilliance and then quite a lot of absolute disaster on some of the, <laughs> the time. But again, also brings brings a lot of money to the table. So maybe if he can rein it in a little bit, he has the potential to be one of the um, the, the faster drivers. Absolutely. I mean, the consistency that he showed in Barcelona stands out as his, as his best moment. But then, um, as you say, blighted by very, very hot-headed moments. Yeah, hot-headed moments throughout the rest of the season, which, which you know, you could say could you know has been potentially dangerous. And uh, yeah, okay, so he's had he's had punishments for it. But um, you do wonder about you know if he if he does start any of that again this season about whether they'll they'll. They'll uh, start cranking up the uh, punishment, but um, yeah, hopefully that's behind him. And uh, obviously, with Williams this year, they'll be looking to to kick on uh, from that win. And uh, obviously, with Bottas uh, clearly being a very fast practice uh, driver from last year, I believe he was. I think he was consistently uh, beating Bruno Senna and also at times Pastor Maldonado uh, to see what is what the, what the potential is there. Um, and we'd be very looking forward to seeing if we have another top finish driver. Definitely been tagged very much as the um, the dark horse again for this year. He's the one that I think a lot of people are looking at to um, uh, to come out of nowhere and perform some mm-hmm. um, probably some minor miracles, unless the Williams has had a massive, massive boost up to its speed and durability for this year. Where do we think we're going to? He's going to. Uh, well, the team is going to finish, I should say, um, in, in compared to the other teams. I would say take a random stab at the midfield. And mm. your guess is as good as um, anything mm. as to where they're going to finish. Because as they showed last season, they were capable of winning races. And at times they had the likes of Caterham nipping right at their heels and almost um, putting in identical times to them. And that leads us nicely into the Caterham team. I'm um, snapping at the heels of Williams last season. I'm pretty sure they'll be quite happy to be doing the same again this year. Yeah, very much so. So we have Van der Gaard and Charles Peake in the driver's seats this year. So a complete driver turnaround. Um, yeah, it, it, was that a sign? Does the team feel that uh, you know the, the drivers didn't perform to what they needed last year? Uh, tricky to say. Um, so it would be it would be interesting to see these drivers. I mean, are the, either those two drivers considered paid drivers at all, or is that? Uh... Um, uh, I'm not really sure on the background there. I know they've got um, pedigree in obviously other formula uh, formulas yeah. with um, the Renault 3.5 series, which is where Van der Gaard uh, come from. He was there in 2008. He was the champion, and mm. he's done years. Uh, obviously racing there and he's been the Caterham test driver um, in the team where he's um, also racing GP2 as well which is obviously considered the feeder series mm. for um, for F1 yeah so yeah he's raced for the Caterham teams in in, in those so mm. absolutely so the you know Caterham team keeping the the step nose um, and obviously taking a a brighter green in terms of the uh, the aesthetics of it but I think more importantly I think obviously Caterham will be looking to uh, I would hope to get distance from the back of the pack now, because as you've said previously, when we were talking about the the absence of HRT, and in a way, it puts more pressure on these on these back end teams to to perform, and they'd be both hoping to distance themselves from Russia, and as a result, starting to uh, to challenge the likes of uh, Williams and Toro Rosso and Force India. 
Yeah, I think so. And I think sort of just pick moving from Marussia to Caterham is a bit of a statement of intent from them as well. I, I think he obviously believes that Caterham on the up and maybe Marussia aren't going the places he would want them to mm. go. Otherwise, I can see no logical move to move from one back marker team to another. So, mm. so last but not least, it's Marussia with Max Chilton and Lewis Razio in the hot seats. So this team will certainly be looking with their new curse technology. Uh, to move themselves up the grid, um, I would have thought part themselves from uh, Caterham and look to get into the uh, the pack where Williams uh, Force India um, are basically. Yeah, I think so, and they've definitely signed themselves uh, two fairly rapid drivers as well in the process of um, doing it with the uh, runner-up from GP2 and the fourth place in GP2, which. Um, GP2 is obviously still considered the feeder series for F1, so um, they're definitely looking um, like they want it. They're heading in the right direction. I mean, with the uh, with the absence of Timo Glock this year, which uh, obviously they're citing financial reasons as well, it certainly uh, begs the question as to uh, as to they're certainly a team which doesn't seem to have much choice. Um, but they seem fairly confident that the the, the drivers, although um, say for Max for example, does have some financial backing there. Um, that they're still so very confident that they're they're good enough. So it'd be very good to see uh, very good to see how they both perform this year. Yeah, it could be an interesting experiment on um, as we were saying earlier on the the balance of talent and paid drivers as well. Which hopefully those two are both um, fairly well balanced. We know that they couldn't afford Timo Glock, so um, they were obviously having to pay him. But two drivers that bring their um, uh, own money to the team and mm. are fast could be a very interesting prospect for them. So yeah, definitely one to watch. Okay, that's the end of the team roundup and the end of the main podcast. Uh, We've just got a couple of little sections left in the podcast and then we'll be finished for this episode. The first thing I'd like to do is hand over to Carl, who will give us a quick rundown on how the forums are going to work with this podcast. So hopefully if we can get some voting going and a bit of listener participation, um, we can get your stories onto the podcast. So, how will the podcast and forums work together? Well, each week, community members will have the chance to post specific topics to a dedicated area on the forums, where other members will also have a chance to discuss and debate on them. At a specific point every week, Tony and I will put these topics into a specific list, whereby community members will vote on the top four items they'd like to discuss. In the event of a tie between topics, we will take them on a first post basis. The top four items will then form the core agenda for the next podcast. Okay, that should give you an idea of what we're trying to do with the forums. Uh, This will all be explained in greater depth on the forums. We'll have a post up actually in the voting section so you can read through there and find out exactly what we're trying to do with this. So the only thing left to do with that now is to actually give you the address for the forums. If you want to go and have a look now, it is forum.lightsoutracing.co.uk and hopefully as well, by the time this podcast goes to air, they should be our website up and running, which is www.lightsoutracing.co.uk. And also, to keep up to date with anything Lights Out Racing in the meantime, or um, of any time really, we also have a Twitter account, which is at Lights Out Racing on Twitter. Okay, the only thing left for me to do now is thank everybody who downloaded and listened to this podcast. And please do bear with us. We understand that not all of the audio was um, quite up to scratch. There was a couple of little problems we had during the recording. There was a lot of technical issues and some that almost derailed the podcast completely. So please do bear with us. We're learning all the time and hopefully um, it's a good starting base that we got here and we would like to improve more and more as time goes on. 
Also, in keeping with the light-hearted nature of the podcast, um, we thought we'd also have a little bit of a laugh at ourselves. So what we've done is we've put together a little outtakes reel for you to enjoy. And um, I don't know if you like it. Maybe we'll continue doing this for every show. Um, but here we go. Um, here's the outtakes. And talking of drivers that are... <laughs> if... Um, they've really taken a step forward we should see probably the bottom of the midfield teams being challenged on a on a weekly basis or on a racely basis mm. <laughs> <laughs> okay so the only part left of the podcast well, the main podcast now so last but not least it's marussia with max chilson and lewis razia in the hot seats <laughs> 